Welcome to Preaching in Season, a series designed to help ministers in their work of interpreting the Bible and preaching the Word throughout the seasons of the church's life. In this episode, Bible professor Mark Hamilton walks us through scriptures that many churches will read during the fifth week after Easter 2022. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this podcast for the fifth Sunday after Easter in the year C, or in common parlance, 2022. I I look forward to conversing with you about these important texts, which are, are good not just for this week, but for every week. Before we begin, let us pray together. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers, spoken and unspoken, in the name of Jesus Christ. Open to us the words of these texts from prophets and apostles and martyrs and sages and singers, so that we may hear in their words your very word as it transforms our lives. We pray in the name of the one who is the word, first of all, Jesus Christ. Amen. This week, the fifth Sunday after Easter, brings to us a number of texts from the from the lectionary. They are Psalm 67, Revelation 21, 10, and 22 through 22, 5, Acts 16, 9 through 15, and John 14, 23 through 29. And I will try to think about those texts in that order. The first of them is Psalm 67, which is a, a very nice song of praise to God, very close to the world of the performance of the of the Psalms. Remember, if you if you read the Psalter, many of these are songs that are intended to be sung in the temple, uh, and they have all the marks of oral performance. Uh, others seem to be more like scribal exercises, like, say, Psalm 119. It's pretty difficult to imagine that being sung in a worship service, but maybe it was. We don't know for sure. But certainly Psalm 67 sounds like it is, and even the superscription of it uh, says that it's for the leader, for the choir director, and to be sung with, with stringed instruments. Uh, the psalm is repetitive, which again is what you would expect from a song that's going to be performed by a group of people. It opens up with this uh, wish, this hope that God will be merciful and gracious to us and will bless us. That that opening line reminds us of the priestly benediction in uh, number 6, 24 through 26, the very familiar text, the Lord bless you and keep you and, and the rest of it. There is that that sense uh, that is, is part of the, the priestly sensibility, the, the life of faith and worship in the temple, that we come to God in order to receive blessing and mercy, that God is, God is not indifferent to our suffering or our, our problems, uh, but wishes to bring blessing to us, uh, to bring order to our lives, to help us shape our lives in the ways that human lives most fitly should look. And so the psalm opens that way and asks for God's blessing on, on all the people of Israel. But, but its, its focus is not just internal. 
it's certainly not just about individuals. It's about a community, but it's it's also not just about that community, not just the people of Israel, because it keeps talking about the salvation that has extended to the nations. God's saving power goes beyond the called people to the rest of the world. Now, there, there are various sides of that, and we, we see this theme repeatedly in the Old Testament as Israel is, is not just inward-looking, it's also outward-looking for various reasons. Some of them are defensive, of course. If you're a tiny little nation surrounded by great foreign powers who are want to be um, hostile and who oppress and invade and destroy, then, of course, you're going to have to pay attention. Uh, people at the, the bottom of the social structure always have to pay attention to the people at the top and to know more about the people who have more power than the powerful people have to know about those who have less. So there, there's that reality. There's a, a defensive quality, if you will. But this text goes far beyond that, and so do most others. There, there is this sense in this text that, that the God, that the people of God worship is not a narrow tribal deity who is concerned only about one group of people or one set of issues. This is the the Lord of all being, and uh, and God is uh, is one who is concerned about all human beings, and the way God is presented in the world is as a God of salvation. And so we get in verse four the the call: Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Uh, we see this also in the book of Isaiah, especially well, really 40 to 66, but, but in various places in Isaiah, the sense that um, the nations will join the people of Israel in the worship of the one God. And conversely, that the people who have been exposed to the one God have the task of telling about God's gracious qualities to those who have not yet had that uh, bit of knowledge passed on to them. So there is here this in this psalm this kind of universalism, if you will let me use that word, this sense that uh, that the faith is much bigger than the tribe that happens to know about it at the moment. Uh, now this same sensibility also shows up in the other text for the week, uh, Revelation 21, uh, near the end of the Bible, virtually the last page. Uh, Remember that Revelation is this book addressed to these churches in Asia Minor, in what's today Western Turkey, little Christian communities that find themselves threatened, not at the moment perhaps by persecution, but by assimilation uh, in their alienness, their, their difference from their neighbors. They find themselves exposed. These are people who are keenly aware of their own smallness. And the book of Revelation wants to remind them that though they may be small, the God they serve is not small. And so we get this vision in chapter 21, near the very end of the book, of radical transformation. No longer will the center of the world be the city on the seven hills on the Tiber, namely Rome, uh, but it will be the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. And so we hear uh, in uh, verse 10 that um, 
that the heavenly city has come down from heaven from God. And then in the part that the lectionary skips, but of course a preacher might very well pay attention to, uh, we get a description of the city. It's a, a cube like the most holy place in the temple in Jerusalem. It's uh, studded with jewels. Uh, it has a wall, but the gates are open, as you would expect from reading uh, the 60th chapter of the book of Isaiah. And, uh, and it's studded, as I say, it's studded with jewels. Uh, the wall, it says, is 144 cubits tall, which means that most of the city is soars above the wall. That's also already pretty interesting. Uh, 144 is, of course, the cube of 12, right? I'm sorry, the square of 12. So 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, 12 gates, and then the square of 12, 12 times 12 gives you 144 cubits, this massive fortification, but not really a fortification anymore uh, because uh, there's no hostile power threatening the city. Walls are not just uh, practical things, they are also ceremonial things. They, they mark the boundary between inside and outside, in the city and outside the city, inside uh, safety and outside safety. And they mark monumentality, the sense that the, there's something really impressive going on inside this circuit. So all of that is, is in the description that the lectionary leaves out. But then it goes on in verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So there is kind of, the, the, the text reaches the logical conclusion that had begun already in the Old Testament's reflection on place uh, and temple, where, uh, as Solomon says in 1 Kings 8, God does not dwell in the house made with human hands, Right? If, if the heavens and the heavens of the heavens cannot contain God, how much less this building that I have built, he says. So from that logic, where God's location and a place is already in quotation marks or already tentative and needing nuance, we move from the view here in Revelation where God is the place. Uh, God doesn't dwell in the place, God is the place. And in some sense, um, the people dwell, come to God not in a temple, but unmediatedly. They come to God directly. And, and then it goes on in verse 24. Uh, it talks about, again, borrowing from the book of Isaiah, we don't need the sun anymore because God is the light. But then it goes on. All the nations and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Again, an image from Isaiah. But the, the, the sense that uh, this, this heavenly kingdom is, is all-inclusive, that all the human race is represented inside of it. And, and yet, uh, there is a moral dimension, because the terrible behavior of people is left outside of it. So if the kings come in, they have to be on their best behavior uh, and not be threaten, threatening to, to the righteous. So there are a lot of things here about not just, the, not just the hereafter, not just some glorious vision of an impossible or 
barely conceivable future uh, utopia, real utopia. But, but there's also something here about the present, about the radical transformation of the power structures that we see around us and their subordination finally at the end to, to, the, to the merciful God who has worked through the risen Lamb, who has raised him from the dead and has crowned him with glory and honor. Now, that sense also appears, that sense of God's concern for the nations also appears in the third reading, and, and I guess, frankly, my favorite one for this week, which is uh, from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16. Uh, in in last, last week's text, we, we found Paul and Silas and their staff headed around uh, Asia Minor, and next week we're going to see them talking to the Philippian jailer. But here we have them uh, on the west coast, on the, 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 the west coast of Asia Minor, the eastern side of the Aegean Sea, uh, sitting around waiting to know what's going to come next. And Paul has this vision at night. He sees a man from Macedonia uh, who tells him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, many of us, of course, grew up with that story and we... And even if we didn't, we, we, we know the phrase, the Macedonian call. Or maybe we've sung that song, we have heard the Macedonian call today, send the light, send the light. So, we, so that, that, bit, that little anecdote has wormed its way into our consciousness. Uh, we don't know what exactly is it that looked Macedonian about this person in his vision, maybe the accent he had when he spoke Greek, maybe his clothing, uh, whatever it was. But uh, Paul takes this vision not just as a weird dream he had after eating the wrong dinner, he takes it as a divine call. We're going to go to Macedonia. And so he, he goes there to this place called Philippi, and he meets a woman named Lydia, who was from out of town, uh, but was engaged in the trade of uh, purple dye. So she's she's dealing in luxury goods. She's selling uh, goods to to rich people, frankly, because most other people couldn't have afforded it. Uh, and she has this business of her own. Lots wish we knew a lot more about her story, but all we get is this one little paragraph. Uh, the paragraph, though, does tell us a couple of important things. It tells us, again, that she's, she's a migrant. She's not from Philippi. She's selling to people who um, apparently have some money and want to spend the money on clothes. Uh, that's all interesting because it reminds us of how much the early church consisted of migrants including Paul himself and his staff, his colleagues, uh, but, but also many others. Uh, but what the text wants to emphasize uh, is her piety. She's called a pious person, Sibomini. Uh, uh, and we hear, too, that uh, they meet her because on the Sabbath day, they've decided to go to a place of prayer. Apparently, Philippi doesn't have a synagogue. It has a some place down by the river outside of town where Jews met to worship. And they meet this woman, 
called Lydia, who uh, is a worshiper of God, the text says. So perhaps a Gentile proselyte of Judaism, perhaps. And so they meet her, and, and she listens eagerly to what they have to say. It's a theme that Acts has has engaged in before. You know, we, we sometimes read this text as though it's a story about conversion of sinners. Repent and do this or that. Turn away from some terrible sin. And certainly that is a theme in Acts. But there's also a theme in Acts of the person who is who is a pious person, who eagerly tries to base his or her life on the following of God. And these people are not called to repent. They're not told to turn away from some terrible sin. She's not. Cornelius is not. They're told instead, your life is headed in the right direction. Let us help you. Let us really help you get there. Um, it's, not about, it's not about earning your salvation. Let, let's be slightly less terrified of works righteousness, shall we? It's about, and let, let's quit having the arguments of the Protestant Reformation every time we open our Bibles. Um, it's about God having a place in these people's lives, but they're needing more information, a deeper commitment, different kinds of relationships, and then receiving those things. And that, that kind of broad and generous spirit that we see in the Acts of the Apostles is something that we should reflect on. It's, it's a wonderful antidote, I would say, to so much of the narrowness and self-righteousness that we're all prone to. Now, that, that, that uh, antidote also occurs, finally, in, in the, the John text from John 14. You remember the chapter is opened by Jesus telling them that uh, they're going to go where he goes and you believe in God, believe also in me, and, and I have many rooms in the heavenly palace. But th that, that's earlier in the chapter. In, th in this chapter, in this part of the chapter, we get a little bit of a different set of things uh, where Jesus uh, speaks in ways that are, as so often in John, a bit cryptic. Uh, he tells them, you need to listen to what I have to say. Love is love of love of Christ is the pursuit of God. And if, if these are the words from God, then you need to pay attention to them. And, and don't just say you love Christ, but have no interest in doing what he's, what he's asking us to do as he points us to God. But he says, uh, I am going away. So we, John is leading us inexorably to Calvary. And is telling us that it's not going to be very long until Jesus is killed, which John will describe as his glorification. Right? But... But there's this sense that Jesus is absent or about to be absent. Uh, and so he says to the disciples, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. It's going to come along and to, uh, to give you what you need to know. We'll reinforce what I've said. We'll equip you to carry out what I've said, to do more than I've been able to do, to carry on this work. There, no, there are a lot of layers to that text and about 
Christology, what, who is Jesus in relationship to God, about pneumatology, the work of the Holy Spirit, all those things, and those, those demand and deserve much longer conversations than I can give here. But I would just make a brief observation about this text. And that is that like so much of the Gospel of John, this text is leaning forward from the ministry of Jesus into the life of his disciples, generation after generation. There is an awareness in the book, which is, is also apparent in the other Gospels, but maybe less, a little less explicitly. There's an awareness in the book that, that the group of Jesus followers will continue after the life of the founders. Not only after the life of Jesus himself, but after the life of the apostles. And that there, there's a the process of transmission of the faith that's going from generation to generation. And so we get here this, this statement by Jesus, I'm going away. I'm going to be with the Father. You should be glad of that because I'm going to the place that you're all going to get to come. I'm, I'm going to be the first one to get there. And I'm preparing a space for you once it's your turn. But, but you're not alone. That Jesus is still present with the church. That, I think, is really should, should cause us to, to engage in a lot of reflection. In what sense is Jesus still present with the church? It's not just that we remember his words or we honor him as we honor other dead people. Because obviously there are many, many dead people who've done good things, whose memories we cherish and whom we wish to honor. Uh, and we do some of them for centuries, if they're good enough or important enough. But it's, it's more than that. Uh, nobody would say Abraham Lincoln is still present with us, even though he did some good and wonderful things. Or that uh, even Francis of Assisi is present with us. Well, you know, we can go through history and pick a lot of names of good and famous people who did important things. Uh, but in Christianity, we talk about the real presence of Christ in the, the Lord's Supper, in the proclamation of the word, in deeds of service, in the life of prayer. Christ is present with us in ways that mean that we no longer control the spiritual experience, nor, nor is our spirituality simply an act of the will or a purely intellectual act, whatever that means. Uh, it is uh, not just something that we generate out of our own minds or, or even out of our communal mind. Uh, that there is a real presence among us that is external to us. Uh, Jesus is present through the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, and John, John wants to insist on that point. He insists on that point because it's part of this much larger web of texts, some of which we've read for this Sunday, which have to do with God's concern for all, for the nations, for the people called Israel, and for all who will hear their testimony or ours going forward. 
Thank you for listening to these reflections. I look forward to hearing from you, uh, your thoughts about them, these texts as well. Preaching in Season is a production of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University in partnership with the Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts. If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, visit us at acu.edu gst or email us at gst at acu.edu. Until next time.